turn this evening to the book of Lamentations. We'll read the first chapter. If you have trouble finding Lamentations, it's a very short book between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, toward the end of the Old Testament, two very long books. So after Jeremiah and before Ezekiel, Lamentations. The book of Lamentations is really a song about the funeral of a city. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, and as we read this, we should imagine him saying it through tears, especially as he tells the story of a princess who becomes a slave. Lamentations chapter 1. How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How is she become as a widow, she that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces? How is she become tributary? She weepeth sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Judah is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude. She dwelleth among the heathen. She findeth no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. Her adversaries are the chief. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the daughter of Zion all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like hearts or deer that find no pasture. And they are gone without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old when her people fell into the hand of the enemy and none did help her. The adversaries saw her and did mock at her Sabbaths. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned. Therefore she is removed. All that honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she sigheth and turneth backward. Her filthiness is in her skirts. She remembereth not her last end. Therefore she came down wonderfully. She hath no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy hath magnified himself. The adversary hath spread out his hand upon all her pleasant things. For she hath seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary, whom thou didst command that they should not enter into the congregation. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their pleasant things for meat to relieve the soul. That was Jeremiah speaking, and now Jerusalem speaks. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am become vile. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see. If there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. From above he hath sent fire into my bones, and it prevaileth against them. 
He hath spread a net for my feet. He hath turned me back. He hath made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgression is bound by his hand. They are wreathed and come up upon my neck. He hath made my strength to fail. The Lord hath delivered me into their hands, from whom I am not able to rise up. The Lord hath trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of me. He hath called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord hath trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as in a winepress. For these things I weep. Mine eye, mine eye runneth down with water, because the comfort of that should relieve my soul is far from me. My children are desolate, because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreadeth forth her hands, and there is none to comfort her. The Lord hath commanded concerning Jacob that his adversaries should be round about him. Jerusalem is as a menstruous woman among them. The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his commandment. Hear, I pray you all people, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders gave up the ghost in the city while they sought their meat to relieve their souls. Behold, O Lord, for I am in distress. My bowels are troubled. My heart is turned within me, for I have grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword bereaveth. At home there is death. They have heard that I sigh. There is none to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that thou hast done it. Thou wilt bring the day that thou hast called, and they shall be like unto me. Let all their wickedness come before thee, and do unto them as thou hast done unto me for all my transgressions. For my sighs are many, and my heart is faint. We read this far in God's holy and inspired word. The verse that stands out in this passage is verse 12, which we'll consider tonight. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Jeremiah, in his larger book, the prophecy of Jeremiah, predicted and prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity of Judah. Now in Lamentations, Jeremiah stands in the midst of the rubble of Jerusalem and explains to us what happened to this city. He's known as the weeping prophet. Jerusalem is destroyed, her glory is gone, the temple is rubble, the walls are broken down, the people are dead, they're wandering around looking for food. Great destruction has come on Jerusalem. The suffering is a suffering of war. Suffering has a way of getting our attention. 
especially the suffering of war, has a way of getting our attention. You've been watching the news in the last weeks, and we see the suffering that war brings in Ukraine. Homelessness, helplessness, sickness, dying, no resources, no food. Where do you turn? What's interesting about Judah's suffering and Jerusalem's suffering is that Jeremiah seems to be, as it were, the only one who cares about it, the only one that understands it, the only one that really notices it. The few who are left behind fail to see why this has happened to them. The nations pass by and shake their heads and say, they had this coming, we're glad the Lord has done this to them. And Jeremiah, in the midst of the rubble of a destroyed city, cries out, is it nothing to you? Doesn't it move you? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow which has happened to me. Have you ever seen it like this before? And how are you going to respond to it? This is the day of the fierce anger of God and he has afflicted me. Tonight, we have perhaps the most, we could say, striking demand to look at the suffering and the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what he says to us tonight. Is it nothing to you? Remember the multitudes, the people walked by early in the morning when he was crucified and they shook their heads. And they poked out their tongues and they said mockingly, he trusted in God that he would deliver him. Well, let God deliver him now if he delights in him. And wagging their heads, they moved on. And this cry comes from the cross, not just to them but to all, to you and to me tonight, to all who hear the gospel. Is it nothing to you? And then this demand, stop, consider, behold, see, if there be any sorrow like his sorrow. Tonight we want to, we can't plumb the depths of it, but we want to try to understand something of the uniqueness and the inexpressibleness of the suffering of our Savior. And we'll see why as well. So tonight let's consider these words under the theme, Behold and See. First, see what. Second, see why. And then the urgent command of the text, see now. You see. Behold. That word is not just talking about looking at something, but it's talking about a transfixed gaze. Stop 
Consider, look, don't move your eyes from this. Behold and see. First, what we must see is the suffering of Jerusalem. I said that the first verses of this chapter are a parable of a princess among the nations, that's what she's called in verse 1, becoming a slave, a tributary in verse 1. She goes from being the, the most beautiful, the outstanding, the city of our God, as she's called in Psalm 48, to this pile of rubble despised by the people. And this call comes from the mouth of Jeremiah in the midst of that. Behold and see. Or we could say, really, as she begins to speak in verse 11, Jeremiah, the reporter on the, seats of, on the streets of Jerusalem, standing before the camera, takes the microphone and he gives it to her. And she says, as he's been explaining her suffering, she says, See, look, consider, behold, is there any sorrow like to my sorrow? What was her sorrow? First of all, it was a sorrow of amazement. You see that already in verse 1, the very first question, how doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princess among the providences, provinces, how is she become tributary? There's an amazement that this city, which was the city of God, is in such ruins. How can it be? All that see shake their heads. They say, how can it be? Second, it's a sorrow that is solitary. And over and over in the chapter, we saw that she's forsaken. In verse 2, she weepeth sore in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Everyone is turned against her. Again in verse 19, I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders gave up the ghost in the city while they sought their meat to relieve their souls. The leaders, worried just about food for themselves, have died. And everyone who should have been there to comfort has left her alone. No one pays attention. Everyone is concerned for themselves. This sorrow, this suffering was deserved. And we see that in the chapter in verse 18. The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his commandment. And also in verse 8, Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. Why this suffering? Because this is what Jerusalem deserved. The consequence of her sin. God is righteous. And sin ends in judgment. But there's one other thing that we have to see about this suffering, and it's important for us tonight as we understand this, this call in the text, Behold and see, is there any sorrow like mine? 
And it's there in verse 7. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries. What did she remember? In verse 18, God is righteous, for I have rebelled against his commandment. She remembered that she had had days of blessing, taken them for granted, not loved her Lord, walked in her adulteries. And now she knows, as she reflects, that her suffering is deserved. Has God chastened us? God chastened you? We see something here of an appropriate response to suffering. When others suffer, it's so easy for us to to point a finger. But how about when we suffer ourselves? Do we then say something like this? Well, this is the way the cookie crumbles. This is just what happens. Or are we able to understand that God touches us sometimes with his finger? Are we self-reflective? And that is important for us individually, but here, and we see this, it's important especially for us corporately. This is Jerusalem who is being chastened. This is the church of God who is going through this suffering. Is she able to reflect? Whose churches have gone through a recent controversy. And we mustn't simply wash our hands, as it were, and move on. But ask the question what have we done? How are we responsible for these things? What can we learn? How should we change, repent? Judah's sin, and she had many opportunities when the prophets came to her, Judah's sin was pride. She didn't want to hear what God said to her. Is there pride in the way that we speak of ourselves? Are we so good, like Judah, at pointing at the faults of others? that we are perhaps blinded to our own. Chastening should produce self-reflection. But now as we look at this verse, it isn't primarily Jerusalem that's suffering here, or Jerusalem that's speaking here. Handel included these words in his Messiah. This is the Messiah who speaks. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord Jehovah hath afflicted me in the fierce day of his anger. God in his fierce anger, 
brings this suffering on Christ. And Christ says to us, look, stop, consider, understand. There's no suffering like mine. And ask yourself the question, why? There is a connection here between Jerusalem and Christ, and it's essential that we understand that so that we see that these are the words of Christ. Just think of all the things in the city of Jerusalem that were representative of, that were types and shadows that pointed ahead to Jesus Christ. The kings, the priests, the temple, the the sacrifices and the ceremonies. And Jesus himself, when he comes looks at the temple, the rebuilt temple, and he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. He uses the name for the place of worship in Jerusalem to, he wasn't speaking of that temple, was he? But to refer to himself, to his own body. Because the temple represented the presence of God, God's dwelling place with his people, and Jesus himself is the fulfillment of The temple in his name, Emmanuel, God with us. And so when the temple and Jerusalem are destroyed, this is a picture of the wrath of God that comes in the end on Christ. There's a recognition of that even in the other nations. Chapter 2, verse 15, all that pass by clap their hands at thee. They hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, is this the city that men called the perfection of beauty and the joy of the whole earth? And they're asking questions. Where are your solemn assemblies? Where are your sacrifices? So much for them. And they despise the types and the shadows in their destruction of Jerusalem. That's a fury against Christ. There are, of course, similarities between the suffering of Jerusalem and the suffering of Jesus Christ. The suffering of Jesus Christ, like the suffering of Jerusalem, was a suffering to cause amazement. We remember that at the time that Jesus Christ suffered God came with great miracles. And you remember the response of the centurion when Christ gave up the ghost and there was a great earthquake and he said in amazement, truly this man was the Son of God. And he asked himself the question, how can it be that this one, the Son of God, has come so low that he must die? Jesus' suffering was also, like Jerusalem's suffering, a solitary suffering. All her lovers left her. And you remember what happened to Jesus in the hour of his suffering when in Gethsemane he prayed, his disciples slept. When Judas and the soldiers came to capture him and they all forsook him. And he goes to the cross all alone in the hour of suffering. And in the end... This is his suffering, that he was forsaken of the one who loved him most and whom he loved most, God. There are those similarities. 
But as we look at the text tonight, we see that the suffering of Jesus Christ was altogether unique. And that's the point here. The point isn't this, that this is the worst of all suffering, or that you can compare this suffering to other kinds of suffering. The point of the text is this, that as you stop, consider, behold, and see, you'll see as you look at the cross and the suffering of Christ that there's no suffering like his. There is plenty of suffering in this world, the suffering of of hunger, of war, of sickness, of death. You don't have to go far to see this suffering. You can go to a hospital. You can go to a nursing home. You can go to a funeral. But Jesus' suffering is different. His name is not added to the list of all the others who suffer. But he says tonight, there's no sorrow like my sorrow, which has happened to me. So as we tonight heed the words of the text, behold, see, stop, consider. Even though we cannot understand the depths of the suffering of our Savior, we must understand something of what makes his suffering unique. So that our souls are moved. And that we're not like those who simply pass by, self-absorbed. So what was it that made the suffering of Jesus Christ unique? Well, first of all, it was this, the dignity of the person who died on Calvary. It's one thing when the common people suffer. It's another when a king or a ruler is assassinated. And the one who suffered on the cross was, in the words of the centurion, the Son of God. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Second, Christ's suffering was undeserved. That is, he suffered as one who was innocent. It's one thing when a person is, we'll say, executed for a crime that it's obvious that they've committed, but it's another thing when one who is innocent is thrown into jail for decades or is is executed, and later it's realized that person didn't do that. This was recognized also at the cross of Jesus Christ. One of the malefactors also railed on Jesus, and the other said, We indeed suffer justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he understood the innocence of the Savior. Third, the suffering of Jesus Christ was unique in this way, that it was voluntary. Who chooses suffering? He did. He chose to enter into this suffering. He did that when he came from the glories of heaven into our flesh. He who thought it was not robbery to be equal with God made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. He took on him the form of a servant. He was 
found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself to death, even the accursed death of the cross. He says, I lay down my life of myself. How different that kind of suffering is. We are born into sorrow. This is our portion. But we do not choose it. We chose to suffer. Then Christ's suffering was also unique in this way that it was vicarious or substitutionary. He did not suffer for himself. He suffered for others. That's altogether unique. Not only was he innocent, but those who were guilty stood around and inflicted this suffering upon him. He suffers in their place. We see a little bit of that here in the way that Judah suffers because the nations around her, and this comes out at the end of the chapter, the nations around her were no better than her, and so she prays that God, after she's repented, she prays that God will meet the same judgment out on them that has come on her. Christ prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Then too, Christ's suffering was lifelong, and it was a, a constant combination of every kind of grief as an expression of the wrath of God against him. We suffer with an illness, and we smile with our families. We suffer with unemployment, but we enjoy the food God has given to us. In the suffering of Jesus Christ, there was a constant combination of every kind of grief. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Every ache, every pain was an expression of the curse of God against sin, which he had to bear. Behold, see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which has happened unto me. That's the question of the text. And the answer, of course, is there is no other sorrow like this sorrow. When it says in the text that this has happened unto him, and that this is something that the Lord has afflicted him with in the day of his fierce anger, it has the idea of, of a great weight of wrath being rolled up, rolled upon him. A crushing weight, a crushing burden. And in the sorrow of his soul for our sins, the wrath of God is rolled upon him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that really answers the second question that we ask tonight. Not see what, but see why. Why did Jesus have to suffer in such a way, in this unique way that none other has ever experienced? I said earlier that this is a reflective sorrow. Judah remembered something when God brought this sorrow upon her. She asked the question, why? 
And we ask that question tonight too. Why did Jerusalem have to suffer in this way? What had she done? Why did the people of God in Jerusalem have to suffer with the wicked in Jerusalem? Why were they carried away into the captivity of Babylon? And the answer is there in verse 18. The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against him. Why must Christ suffer? For sin. Colossians 2 puts it this way, that the handwriting of our sin was nailed with him to the cross. That is, the condemnation of our sin was nailed to the cross with him so that he was condemned. And all the uniqueness of the suffering of Jesus Christ correlates to the depth and the greatness of our sin. God, in the day of his fierce anger, afflicted this upon him. And so tonight as we look at the suffering of Jesus Christ, what we need to see, what you need to see, old and young alike, boys and girls, parents, men, women, myself, you yourself, we need to see our sin. And the Bible gives us many ways to see the magnitude, the breadth, and the depth, the guilt, and the weight of our sin. There are what the Bible calls in Psalm 19 presumptuous sins, that is, sins against better knowledge, as well as secret sins, and we don't even know about them, and they too must be forgiven. There are sins of commission and omission, sins where we fail to do something, that's a sin of omission that God requires, or sins where we blatantly break one of God's commandments, that's a sin of commission. There are all our actual sins, sins in thought, sins in words, sins in deed, and then there is the guilt and the depravity of our nature, and all of this necessitated the unique suffering of Christ. And as we tonight behold and see and confess and love and believe in the suffering of the Savior, we're saying something that's saying something to you and me about our sin. Do we understand the not just the power but the guilt and the depth and the weight of our iniquity. That points us to one other thing that is unique about the suffering of Jesus Christ, that in the suffering of Jesus Christ, something happens 
that never happens in any other suffering. And it's this beautiful truth that the suffering of Jesus Christ is an actual payment for sin. There's, many other, there's much other suffering, which is a suffering for sin. The result of the sin of Adam and Eve is a curse on creation and humanity. And all human suffering is, in the end, because of sin. And sometimes in this life, we ourselves have to bear in our lives the result of our own sins. And certainly in hell, men suffer for their sin to eternity. But here, the suffering of Jesus Christ is unique in that he pays the price for sin. When God punishes and judges man for his sin, he, as it were, has to measure out that suffering, has to measure it out in in portions. And so... There's an eternity of suffering in hell for man. But Christ, on the cross, bore the full weight of the wrath of God to remove it, to pay the price for sin. The fierce anger of Jehovah, the day of the fierce anger of Jehovah. What could that be referring to but the cross, the day of the fierce anger of Jehovah? And in that day, he propitiated, he appeased, he turned away the wrath of God. He satisfied the justice of God. He made full and final payment for sin. So that, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, He, that is God, shall see the travail of His soul and be satisfied. And from the darkness He cried, It is finished. There's no other suffering for sin like that. To an eternity, men and women will suffer in hell, but never will they be able to say, it is finished. And this is why he had to be God. I spoke earlier of the dignity of the one who suffered. Only God is strong enough to bear such a burden of sin. And this too is why he must suffer alone. His solitary suffering was necessary because... No one else can pay for sin. There's none to help him because none can help him in the hour of his suffering. In the wrath, in the appeasing of the wrath of God, in the justifying of the sinner, in the forgiveness of sins, Christ does the work of salvation completely alone, all by himself. You do not satisfy God. You do not win the favor of God. But Christ alone restores us to peace with God. Behold, see. Do you understand the urgency of those words? Especially as we consider not only 
our own sinfulness, but also the impossibility that we, by ourselves, can come and in some way satisfy the fierce anger of God. See, now, that is, believe now in Jesus Christ. The gospel of the cross and the suffering of the Savior, and this is clear from the text, demands a response from all who pass by, from all who hear the good news of the cross and the suffering of Jesus Christ. There is good news. The good news is what I've just declared to you, that Jesus Christ makes payment for sin. But there's also a demand. Behold. See. What are you going to do tonight with what you've heard about the suffering of Jesus Christ? Are you simply going to say, well, that's interesting, and move on? Are you perhaps going to do what those who were coming out of Jerusalem on that morning when Jesus was crucified on Calvary did, and gawk and shake your head and laugh and move on? Is it nothing to you? Or how important is this to you? Are there other things that are far more important to you? Here's just another one who had to suffer. Just another criminal crucified among criminals. You have things to be busy with. You have things to go about in your, in your life. Do you just add his name to the list of those who suffered? this horrible suffering in this world. His was too. Behold. See. Stop. Consider. Are you moved? Do you understand what's happening? On Calvary, do you understand the transaction, the payment being made for sin as he comes to the cross as the Lamb of God who bears the sins of his people? That there God inflicts wrath upon him to remove the burden and the weight of the guilt of sin to deliver us from the punishment of hell that we deserve for our sin. What does it mean to you? Why is it unique? Why so severe? Why was it that the Son of God had to suffer. And then when you ask those questions, you realize, do you realize, as a sinner, there's no way 
for me to be accepted with God, but through Jesus Christ. So when he says here, Behold and see, if there be any sorrow like to my sorrow, he's saying, Repent of your sins. Look unto me, the ends of the earth, and be saved. I, if I be lifted up, will draw men, women, children from all the earth to me. Repentance and faith. What is it to repent? To repent is to confess our sins and to turn away from them in a life of godliness because we hate sin and we love God. Faith, faith is to trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and for your righteousness and your acceptance with God, not to trust in your accomplishments, not to trust in your achievements, not to trust in your lineage, but to trust in Christ. And when the Savior says to you and me tonight, Behold and see, He doesn't want us to stand there with Jeremiah and weep. In Luke chapter 23, verse 28, daughters of Jerusalem, they're called, are following him. These are women who are, as it were, putting on a show of sympathy for the one who's going to be crucified. So they follow Jesus Christ to Calvary and they weep for him. And Jesus turns to them and he rebukes them and he says to them, Women, weep not for me, but weep for yourself and for your father's house. Weep for Israel, weep for your sins, weep in repentance. I don't need your sympathy. No, Jesus Christ goes to the cross as the voluntary, victorious Savior to take on the enemy and to overcome and to remove the guilt of sin. And he accomplishes that. He says, don't weep for me. Come in repentance. And in faith. Here's the refuge for sinners. Here's our only hope. Jesus Christ. God's son. And his unique suffering. So tonight let us be emptied of ourselves. And rest in him alone. Amen. Father, we're grateful for the Savior who took so much on himself in our place, who so willingly went alone to Calvary, who bore thy fierce anger that we deserved. Father, as we think of the, the wonder and the plan of redemption, we're grateful for thy wisdom and thy revelation in the scriptures. Turn our hearts daily 
to the Savior and turn us away from our sin and self-righteousness. We pray it for his sake. Amen.